Well, let's turn in the book of Revelation to chapter 7 today. Those of you who are visiting this morning, I just want to say by way of reminder that uh, since the beginning of 2019, we have been preaching through the book of Revelation. You know, we don't have to be scared to read the book of Revelation. I've heard Christians often say that uh, they were afraid to read of the final book in the New Testament. We don't need to because in Revelation 1 verse 3 it says, Blessed is everyone who reads the words. So there's a blessing in here for every believer. You know, the devil doesn't want us to read the book of Revelation because it's the book that tells of his doom and defeat. And so I've read to the end, and guess what? Jesus wins, and the church wins, amen? So there's always a blessing when you can study in these prophetic passages. Chapter 7 is about the tribulation harvest. And before we jump into the text today, I want to show you a 2014 report that was done by a British newspaper called The Telegraph. They wrote an article with a stunning prediction in the headlines a few years back, and here's what it said. Quote, China on course to become world's most Christian nation within 15 years. Now, that may seem incredible to you and I for a couple of reasons. First, because we know that China has long been oppressed by communism, and those communist rulers espouse atheism. And then secondly, because the heart of Christianity for centuries has been in the West, in Europe and North America. But here's an excerpt from that article. Here's what it said, quote, Officially, the People's Republic of China is an atheist country. But that is changing fast as many of its 1.3 billion citizens seek meaning and spiritual comfort that neither communism nor capitalism have been able to supply. Christian congregations have skyrocketed since churches began opening when Mao's death in 1976 signaled the end of the Cultural Revolution. Less than four decades later, some believe that China is now poised to become not just the world's number one economy, but also its most numerous Christian nation. Is that news to you today? Well, here's what the rest of the article said. In 1949, China boasted just one million Christians. But over time, as of 2010, there were 58 million professing Christians in China. Compare that to the 40 million in Brazil and 36 million in South Africa, and you see how, according to that trend, it's very likely that this prediction will come true. Experts believe that China will swell to about 160 million believers by the year 2025, and that will put China ahead of even the United States, which right now boasts about 159 million professing Christians. And it's quite ironic when you read that. Because if you know anything about communist dictators like Mao, they tried to eliminate God from the public sphere. And yet, all of those policies have backfired. And now Christianity is spreading like wildfire in that part of the world. So these are amazing times that we are living in. And it appears that the pendulum of the gospel is swinging now from the west to the far east. 
And if the Lord does tarry, the day may come when China sends missionaries to Europe and to even, yes, America. Now, as wonderful as it is to hear about the work of the Holy Spirit in a place like China, did you know that the Bible predicts that there is even a greater spiritual awakening on the horizon? In fact, this outpouring of God's grace will sweep over the globe in just a few short years, and vast multitudes of people from every nation, kingdom, tribe, and tongue will profess Jesus as Savior. And this will be, I believe, the greatest movement of God that our world will ever see. Now the odd thing about it is that this worldwide spiritual awakening will take place in the worst time in history. It will take place during the tribulation. So as God's wrath is being poured out here on the earth, so too will His saving mercy be available. And that's what Revelation 7 is all about. Here we find in this chapter the details of what I call the tribulation harvest. Now in this chapter we're going to discover those whom God saves through the tribulation and those whom God will save in the tribulation. Now as we look at this passage, let's go to verse 1, and you will see, number 1, the tribulation setting. The tribulation setting. Read with me verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. So as this chapter unfolds, we see that it is really a new vision. This chapter is a parenthesis or a pause which comes in between the sixth and the seventh seal judgments. Now in the previous chapter, chapter 6, we saw that as these judgments were unleashed upon the earth, each time Jesus peeled back one of the seals on that title deed of the earth, that seven-sealed scroll. And at the end of chapter 6, six of those seven seals had been broken. The Antichrist, war, famine, death, martyrdom, and various cataclysms had raged across the earth. And now we come to chapter 7, which is like a pause in the action. Before this last seal on the title deed of the earth is opened, we find a short grace period where God selects and seals a special group of people against the judgment coming on the world. Now, as this opens, John sees four angels restraining the winds of God's wrath. It's the proverbial calm before the storm. God is going to temporarily shut off the forces which drive the earth's atmosphere. There'll be no wind. There'll be no waves breaking on the shore. No movement in the clouds or in the sky. Earth will be deathly still. Dr. Henry Morris, who's a brilliant Christian scientist, wrote about this passage. Listen to what he said. It's very insightful. He said, quote, The circulation of the atmosphere is a mighty engine driven by energy from the sun and from the earth's rotation, the tremendous powers involved in this operation become especially obvious when they are displayed in great hurricanes and blizzards and tornadoes. And these winds 
make life possible on the earth through the hydrologic cycle. But yet, it only takes four of God's mighty angels to restrain this gigantic wind-making engine. Friend, can you imagine when God presses pause? And can you imagine no wind, no waves, no weather, as it all comes to an eerie calm here on planet earth? Especially when you read chapter 6 and you understand that famine and war is raging and that the sky has been darkened and that the moon has turned to blood. It will all pause. It will all be shut off in a moment. Because God is about to do something significant. That's the tribulation setting. But then number two, I want you to see the tribulation survivors. As John watches, a fifth angel appears. He rises from the east like the morning sun. And look at what verse 2 says. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And so this fifth angel commands the four angels holding back the winds not to release any judgment on the earth, but to hold off long enough so that he'll have sufficient time to move across the earth and seal these 144,000 servants that have been set aside to do a special work of God. Now, the great question that arises as you study this passage is, who are these 144,000? In fact, this has been the site of a theological battleground for many years. And over the decades, there have been groups who have tried to claim that they are the 144,000. Now, the text tells us who they are, but before I tell you who they are, let me tell you that I know who they aren't. They are not the church. You say, how do you know that? Because the church is already in heaven, according to chapters 4 and 5. This 144,000 is on the earth. This 144,000 is not the Jehovah's Witnesses. How many times have they come and knocked on your door and said, hey, we'd like to talk to you about the Scriptures. I love when they show up at my house because they don't know they're knocking on the door of a Baptist preacher. The Jehovah's Witness, they claimed to be the 144,000. But as their cult grew over the years, they've had to revise that teaching and they now say that the 144,000 has been filled, and anybody else that wants to come into God's kingdom has to work for their salvation. Now, friend, let me just stop right there and say that any group that has to revise their original doctrine ain't worth a plug nickel. They're not the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're not the church, and they're not the Seventh-day Adventists. Did you know that the Seventh-day Adventists have claimed to be the 144,000? In fact, they teach that this group is in their church and they will be found faithful observing the Sabbath when the Lord returns. Well, in order for that to be true, those 144,000 would have to be Jews. I was reading this week 
uh, from Warren Wiersbe, and he tells a very interesting story in one of his commentaries that he was having a conversation with a man who was from one of these cultic groups, and he claimed to be part of the 144,000. And Dr. Wiersbe said that he just let the man talk. And at the end of his discourse, he asked the man, he said, all right, well then, I just got one question for you. He said, if you are in the 144,000, tell me what tribe you are from, and can you prove it? And the man was said to be stopped dead in his tracks. It's amazing to me how so many of these fringe groups get so far off base when they start twisting the Scriptures. So who is this group? Well, the Bible tells us. There's three attributes talked about in this passage. First off, they are selected from the Jews. Notice verse 4. And I heard from the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from Judah and Reuben and Gad and Asher and Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin were sealed. Now, these 144,000 will be selected from the 12 tribes of the Jewish nation. And so that automatically rules out a lot of the human race, doesn't it? Now you say, why 12? Why is this factor important? Twelve in the Bible has always been a number that is associated with God's people, the Jews. There were twelve tribes of Israel, twelve stones on the ephod of the high priests, twelve loaves of bread on the table of showbread inside the tabernacle. Jesus selected how many apostles, how many disciples? Twelve. So twelve has always been a number associated with God's people, the Jews. So we see that they're selected from the Jews. And then secondly, we see that they are sealed from judgment. Verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, the idea of sealing carries the thought of not only possession, but also preservation. In ancient times, if a king was going to send an official document from one part of the kingdom to another, it was sealed with wax and the royal signet was impressed upon it to show that it was authentic. And in the same way, these 144,000 are going to be sealed with some kind of mark. We don't know what it is, but they're going to be set aside and divinely protected by God during this terrible time on the earth to do a very special job. Now, why do they have to be sealed? Because... If you go to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, in Zechariah 13 in verse 8 and 9, we read that during the tribulation period, two-thirds of the Jewish people are going to be killed by the Antichrist. Those verses say, "...in the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested." And they will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So the remaining third will come through the fire of the tribulation like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came through the furnace in Babylon in Daniel chapter 3. These 144,000 will be part of Zechariah's enduring third that will be divinely protected as they carry out this mission that God's going to give them. 
because they are supernaturally protected, we know that they will survive to the end of the tribulation period. And their ultimate destiny is that they will enter into Jesus' millennial kingdom at the end, and they will be part of the group that will repopulate the earth during Jesus' reign here for a thousand years. So they are sealed from judgment, they're selected from the Jews, and then this text tells us something else. They are servants of Jehovah. Notice again verse 3. Until we have sealed the servants of our God. So what are they going to do? These 144,000 are given one specific task. To evangelize the world with the gospel. You say, that's strange. The Jewish people today, they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Well, when the earth starts shaking and things begin to fall apart, something's going to change in the hearts of God's people. They're going to recognize their scriptures and they're going to understand that everything that Jesus said about Himself was true. And they'll come back to receive Jesus as their Messiah. And so the preaching ministry of the 144,000 is going to be the greatest outpouring of spiritual awakening that will ever happen on the earth. Just think of this. Jesus took 12 ragtag disciples He filled them with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He sent them out in the world to preach the gospel, found the church, and turned things upside down. If He did all of that with 12 simple men, imagine what He can do with 144,000 flaming evangelists filled with the Spirit of God, divinely protected, and sent out into the evil world to declare God's good news. Now, just as an aside, while we're here, Let me point out two other specific prophetic passages that are connected to the ministry that will accompany the 144,000. In Joel chapter 2, we read a prophecy there. In fact, this was quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It was only partially fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, but it will be ultimately fulfilled when the 144,000 go out into the world. Look at what this passage says. And it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Speaking of the 144,000. Also on My men servants and maid servants, I will pour out My Spirit on them in those days. We know it's going to happen during the tribulation because look at the signs. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. And the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, and the Lord has said among the remnant whose the Lord calls. Another passage that goes along with this is in Matthew 24, Jesus' Olivet Discourse, His Prophecy briefing to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Olives. Look at what he says there in verse 14 of Matthew 24. He says that before His second coming, that the gospel will be preached in every corner of the earth. Verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And friend, if Jesus says it, that settles it. Amen? So we've seen the tribulation setting. And the tribulation survivors. But now I want to talk to you, number three, about the tribulation saints. And that's what verses 9 through 17 are about. John shifts his gaze 
from the 144,000 on the earth now to a vast sea of people in heaven who are crowded around the throne of God worshiping the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Now, this is going to be a different group that we will see here. We haven't encountered this group yet. They're not the church. They're not the 144,000. They're not Israel. These are the people who have been saved during the tribulation period by the preaching of the 144,000. And many have given their life. They've been martyred. And now their soul is with the Lord. Notice here in verse 9, we read about their size. Verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Bless God as I read that passage, I'm reminded that salvation is colorblind. Notice that the gospel is greater than any man-made label or system or border or segregation that we might want to put on the human race. Every time I look at that verse, I think about the little song that we learned in Sunday school as kids. Jesus loves the little children of the world. All the children, red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in His sight. Heaven is going to be an exciting place because there's going to be people from every nation, kingdom, tribe, and tongue praising the same Jesus that you believe in. We won't be separated by race or ethnicity or any kind of system that we've created. We'll be unified by the Spirit of God and we'll be praising the Lamb of God who brought about this great salvation, pulling together from every corner of the earth people who would be a part of this great thing that God has been building now for 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ. And if there's any racism or any problem that you might have with people of another ethnicity or another skin color, hey, this ought to solve it right here because the ground is level at the cross of Jesus Christ. And heaven is going to be a really diverse place. God shows no partiality. Amen? In fact, that's one of the hallmarks of Billy Graham's great ministry. Billy Graham had the privilege of preaching to people all over the world in every country. In fact, they say that he has preached to more human beings than any other in history. They estimate that Billy preached to 280 million people in person and millions more through radio and television. In fact, through his crusades, they say that three million people made decisions for Christ. But I'm here to tell you, as great as that is, it will be a drop in the bucket compared to those who are going to come to Christ by the ministry of the 144,000. Listen to what David Jeremiah wrote about this. He said, quote, I've watched Billy Graham crusades and have been overwhelmed by the thousands of people who responded to a simple, straightforward gospel message. Can you imagine then how it will be when those 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams begin to preach? Stadiums will not be able to hold the converts. As they leave the evangelistic rallies, the Gestapo of the Antichrist will probably be waiting at the gates trying to capture those who have the seal of God. The size. And then also notice this, their song. There's going to be a lot of singing in heaven, friends. Listen to what it says. Verse 10. 
And they were crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And the church says, Amen. The song of the tribulation saints Oh, they join in the praise and worship of heaven. Here they are clothed in white, representing the righteousness of Jesus Christ, just as the church has already been clothed according to chapter 4. In their hands they're waving palm branches, we see. A symbol of victory. Where have you seen this before? The triumphal entry of Christ when He rode into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey. And the people cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of of the Lord, except now we're on the other side of the cross and the other side of the empty tomb, and they wave those palm branches as a sign of Jesus' victory over Satan and over sin and over the evil world and over death. And as they sing, we see here that the singing of the tribulation saints gets all the angels and all the elders and the four living creatures stirred up. Did you see what it said in verse 12? Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. How many more superlatives can they pile on top of that as the praise goes out to the Lamb of God? Friend, I'm here to tell you today, this world will be the quietest place that we ever live. Heaven's going to be a place of shouting. Heaven's going to be a place of singing because we have overcome and we have a new song to sing to our victorious Savior. The best worship experience that you've ever had on earth will not compare to five seconds being in the throne room of heaven. We'll praise Christ for the cross. We'll laud Him and praise Him for the sacrifice that He made on our behalf. We'll praise Him for the victory of the empty tomb. That death has been abolished in that kingdom. And that death is not welcome and is no more. We will be assured and we'll be hopeful of His second coming. Of His return back to the earth. We'll be pleased to see the justice of God carried out upon a wicked world. As Jesus Christ comes to claim what is rightfully His. We will praise God when we hear of the defeat of Satan and that our great enemy has been crushed under the foot of our great Savior. We'll sing when they crown Him with many crowns. We'll praise Him when we bow before His feet and give a crown to us. We'll cast it back in His direction and say, No, Lord, only You are worthy to wear the crown. We'll praise Him when the kings of the earth must grovel before His throne and say, You were right! Every knee must bow and every tongue must confess. You are Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. We will praise Him when He comes back, when He looks to the church and says, Are you ready, church? Go to the stables and get your white stallion. We'll praise Him when we mount up and we ride with Him back down to this planet. And He places His foot back on the Mount of Olives. And the mountain splits in two. And He walks across the valley and finds His enemies there waiting for Him. It won't even be a battle. Friend, He'll speak one word. He'll say, enough! It is finished! And all the enemies 
of the Lamb will fall before Him and will praise Him and give Him blessing and honor and glory and praise for a thousand years. And then after that, as the ages roll on, we'll think about the Lamb of God crucified, risen, reigning, and reigning forevermore. Their song, their sighs. Notice their sacrifice. When one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These saints have lived through the horrors of the tribulation. They suffered tremendously. They have given their lives for the profession of faith, sealing their commitment with Christ by their own blood. Now as they bask on the other side, there in the presence of Christ and in the glory of heaven, they understand that whatever hardship and whatever suffering they had to face on this earth was worth it after all. Friend, I don't know what valley God has asked you to go through. I don't know what cross God has asked you to bear. But on the other side of glory, friend, I'm telling you, you will raise up in a resurrection body and be able to sing with a new song. It was worth it after all. Lord, I don't know why you asked me to go through that valley. Lord, I don't know why you asked me to carry that cross. But I'm glad today that I was faithful to the end. And you are worthy because you gave me the strength to finish well. C.T. Studd, the great missionary, he said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. Then we see their service, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Don't you believe the lie of the enemy that tells you that heaven is going to be a boring place? Heaven is going to be the most exciting place. The party ain't going to be in hell. It's going to be where Jesus is. Heaven isn't going to be a place where we're going to sit on a cloud and strum a harp and eat bonbons all day. That's not heaven. We're saved to serve the Lamb of God. We have a chance to be a part of the new kingdom that He is going to build. And these tribulation saints, look at this. The Bible says that they're going to have a special job to serve Him day and night in the temple. You look forward to serving Jesus? You're saved to serve. Not only in the church, but in glory. Who knows what occupation the Lord's going to give you? What did David say? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to be a dweller in the tents of wickedness. Hey, I don't know what job the Lord's going to give me. I don't know what the Lord's going to do with preachers. What is He going to do with preachers in heaven? Because there won't be any gospel left to preach. I don't know what He's going to do with us. But friend, I'm excited to be a part of it. If He hands me a broom and say, you're going to be sweeping the temple, I'll do that with gladness in my heart. Listen to what Randy Alcorn wrote in his book on heaven. He said, work in heaven won't be frustrating or fruitless. It will involve lasting accomplishment, unhindered by decay and fatigue, enhanced by unlimited resources. Since we will all have resurrection bodies and we will all be gaining skill, 
So that our best work will always be ahead of us. Because our minds and bodies will never fade and because we will never run out of resources, our work won't deteriorate. Because heaven is forever, the work we accomplish for Christ will also last forever. Praise God. Their service and then finally, their safety. Notice this, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, and the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think about all the suffering that these people will have endured. They will have been hungry. They will have faced war and sickness during the tribulation period. But now, under the care of the Good Shepherd, finally arriving on the shores of home, they'll be safe forevermore. Remember the old hymn? We sing it from time to time. There's a day coming when no heartache shall come. No more clouds in the sky. No more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day. Glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I see. When I look upon His face, the One who saved me by His grace. When He takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. I don't know if some of you are excited about that. Oh my goodness, I'm glad this morning that we have a Jesus to shout about. That we have a heaven to look forward to. That the worst thing that we will face on this earth has already been defeated by our overcoming King. We finish with this. Adrian Rogers tells a very interesting story in one of his books. He said that he was on a flight returning back home. And of course, as most flights begin, there was the stewardess standing in the front of the plane going over the safety protocol and giving instructions to the people on board. He said he paid attention as she gave those directions. But he noticed as he looked around that nobody else in the cabin of the plane was listening to what she was saying. He said everybody was more occupied with getting comfortable and making sure they had all their possessions in place than they were in the event of an emergency coming about. Then he said this, He said, midway through the flight, the plane ran into some turbulence. If you've ever been on a plane, when things start shaking, I tell you what, there's no atheists at 30,000 feet. He said, all of a sudden, the aircraft began to tumble and bounce, and then the nose turned downward. The pilot came over the intercom, and he told people to brace for the worst. Put your seatbelt on and buckle up. He said, immediately, everyone's demeanor changed. He said he looked around the the cab of that plane and he said people were breaking out in panic. People were failing themselves. Their hearts were failing for fear. People even started to pull out the little pamphlet in front of them to read about what might happen if they had to swim or something like that. He said even some people started praying out loud. And then he made this comment. He says, the panic that overcame that airline 
will give you an idea of what will happen during the tribulation. Right now, people are not concerned about the things of God. They are more concerned with everyday affairs and the pursuit of pleasure and comfort. But just wait till the world encounters the turbulence that God is going to send. People will not be as casual and apathetic about God then as they are today. In the midst of that judgment, he said, people will cry out for mercy. And I don't know what is more amazing. That God has offered the church the hope of deliverance from the turbulence that is to come. Or that during that tribulation period, God is going to be reaching out to sinners. Giving them one more chance to repent before it's too late. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all may come into repentance. And friend, if you don't know the Lord as your personal Savior, if Jesus Christ were to come today and you don't know Him, you would be left behind to face the terror on the earth. If you don't know Jesus and your number were to be called today and you were to end your earthly life, you would hear the worst phrase that anybody could ever hear. Depart from me. You work of iniquity for I never knew you. You can change that today. As our musicians come, we want to have a time of invitation. If anybody needs to receive Jesus as Savior, if you need to plead the blood of Christ, you can do that now. He died in your place. Took the punishment that you and I deserved. Rose on the third day and through Him we have mercy and forgiveness and a new start and the hope of heaven.